once again and welcome to the Advent season. It's a time that we're going to celebrate now over the next several weeks with churches of all stripes everywhere in the world. It's a season that we all look forward to. Advent is a word which means coming. It, we think, when we think of it, we think of the first coming of Jesus when he came as a baby in Bethlehem. But actually, it's a, it's a, the word has two comings in mind, both his first coming and his second coming. The first one is history. The second one is somewhat in the future. And so today, we're going to look at the first aspect, the first candle of Advent, which is the, the prophecy candle, as has already been brought out. But I'd like to take you back to 1962. Um, there was a, a famous pitcher. His name was Gaylord Perry. And he was a Hall of Fame pitcher. And he was in batting practice before a game. And the manager of the San Francisco Di Giants at that time, whose name was Alvin Dark, watched Gaylord Perry, a pitcher, in the batting cage. He was horrible. Horrible. And Alvin Dark said this. There'll be a man on the moon before Gaylord Perry hits a home run. 34 minutes after the Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon. 34 minutes. Gaylord Perry hit a home run. Seven years later and 34 minutes after they landed on the moon, he actually hit a home run. He hit a home run in, a game, in Candlestick Park against the Dodgers picture in the third inning his first and maybe his only home run ever. Now, you got to ask yourself the question, was Alvin Dark a prophet? <laughs> no. No, but we are very rightly intrigued when someone makes an extraordinary, odd, seemingly specific prediction and it actually comes true. Now, Alvin Dark made no, uh, he never said he was a prophet. He just was making an off-the-cuff crazy statement. But it just happened to be true. We've, uh, glimpses into the future have always aroused human beings. That's why almost every uh, newspaper in America has a horoscope each day in the newspaper. That's why people are so interested in psychics and Ouija boards and people like Nostradamus and Gene Dixon and all of these kinds of things. Why? Well, there's something about the future and anyone that knows anything about the future, that really intrigues us because we know that, in fact, you don't really know about the future. Because if you did, come on, if there's anyone who re realistically could predict the future, they'd be a billionaire. You'd invest in the stock market, of course. I mean, you'd be maybe a trillionaire because you'd know how to invest if you really knew the future. We're interested in it, but there's something deep inside of us as human beings we know no one really can. Well, today, I'm going to challenge that notion. I'm going to challenge that notion because actually, there is an event in human history that was without question prophesied hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years before it happened, and it came through perfectly in the most unbelievable way. And these are the prophecies of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to help us today, I'm going to use Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling, the famous writer, um, he uh, once wrote a poem, and it's called Six Honest Serving Men. The first part of this poem goes as follows. 
I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. So Rudyard Kipling's poem here is going to be the backdrop today for us looking at the following six words in Holy Scripture. What? What will the Messiah be? Because remember, the Jewish people's fondest hope was one day that a Messiah that was promised over and over and over and over again in the Holy Scriptures would actually arrive. But God wanted it to be absolutely clear when this Messiah showed up. And so God decided he was going to answer all six questions. What will the Messiah be? Why will the Messiah come? When will the Messiah come? How will the Messiah come? Where will the Messiah come from? And who will the Messiah be? So we're going to let Rudyard Kipling's questions take us to the Old Testament and then its fulfillment in the person of Jesus as we look at the first Sunday of Advent, the prophecy candle. The first question is what? What will the Messiah be? Now, by that I mean, um, it, it's very easy. I could, let, let's say I'm a prophet. And someday in the future, a politician is going to come who will be a lawyer. Now, am I a politician? No, I'm an idiot. I mean, of, of course, they're all, they're all lawyers. Or even, get a little farther on, there will come a, a, a leader of the United States government who will have a PhD degree. Well, that's, maybe that, that could probably happen. Or if I said, maybe there will become someone who, who will be a physician, a medical doctor. That could probably happen too. Might be a little bit farther out than being a lawyer, but now, what if, however, I said, and remember, in a Jewish context, that one day the Messiah will come and this Messiah will be a king, no problem there, and he will be a priest, Whoo! huge problem there, and he will be a prophet. No, <laughs> absolutely impossible, according to Jewish people, but in their Holy Scriptures explicitly it says, and they were the ones who said this, the Messiah will be a king from the tribe of Judah, the family of David. The Messiah will be a priest, and the Messiah will be a prophet. It's impossible, but that's what their Scriptures said. Here's the evidence. The Messiah will be a king. This first statement is a statement that comes from um, the book of 2 Samuel. This is given to David. This is what's called the Davidic covenant. David lived roughly 1,000 BC, a thousand years before Jesus. Here's the scriptures. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Remember the context? In this context, God said to David, David, you will not be allowed to build a house for me. Your son's going to do that, Solomon. But David, building a house for me is child's play. I'm going to do something for you a thousand billion times better. I'm going to build a house for you. And this little temple that Solomon is going to build, even though it's a magnificent building, it's going to be destroyed. It will go away. But the house that I'm going to build for you, David, 
will last for all eternity. When your days are over, David, when you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I mean, that's pretty clear. I mean, I don't know how in the world you could ever write anything clear except that's nonsense. Where in the world do we have any king that lasts forever? But God said to David that from your lineage, there will be, this throne will be established forever. Whoa. But the prophets also said that the Messiah would be a priest. Now, this that we're going to read right now is from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah wrote around the year 520 B.C. This is 500 years before Jesus' time. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. And by the way, in the Jewish writings, this is identified, not Christian, Jewish. In the Jewish writings, this is identified as a messianic passage. They knew that this applies to the Messiah. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. That word, the branch, comes up many times. It's a clear messianic reference. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. Sounds like a king. And he will be a priest on his throne. And they'll hate each other's guts. No, it doesn't say it. It says, and there will be harmony between the two. A priest on a throne can't happen. Because the priests have to be from the, the lineage of Levi, the tribe of Levi. Kings who sit on thrones have to be from the tribe of Judah. And it must have caused them to scratch their heads and go, what in the world is going on here? But the prophet said that the Messiah will be a priest who sits on the throne and there will be harmony between them, and the plot will thicken. Because this is Moses. Moses wrote roughly 1450 BC, he wrote this down. The Lord your God, he's speaking to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command you, or command him. Now, this is the work of the prophets, and this could have applied to all the prophets in general, but it's going to have its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah, who would be a king, and a priest, and a prophet. As you know, the Christmas story begins. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
And then, this is in the book of Hebrews, as the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to show that Jesus is infinitely superior to everything. Because at the time this book was written, there were Jewish people who were going back to Judaism, leaving Christ and going back to Judaism. And, and the writers of Hebrews says, no, why would you go back to something so inferior after you've had a taste of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then in this section, in chapter 5, it speaks about that Jesus is a priest, but a priest by a higher, a higher caste than the priesthood of Aaron. Why? Because Abraham, when he went to Salem, which is Jerusalem, after having won a battle, he stood before the king of Salem, this mystical person in the city that later became Jerusalem. He gave him a tenth, a tithe, acknowledging that, that this priest in Salem was superior to Abraham. And who was in Abraham? Levi. Because Levi is the son of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. So in effect, Levi was acknowledging this priest of Salem is superior. And Jesus, the prophet of, 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 of the person of Hebrew says, Jesus is a priest of an order higher than the order of Aaron, the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a priest. But he's also a prophet. These are what people said about Jesus in John. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. And Jesus said to them, as people were declaring him prophet, he said, Oh, only in his hometown, among his own relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He says, I, the prophet, have honor everywhere except in my own hometown. Because you still remember me as little Jesus boy that you patted at the top of his head. You will never give appropriate honor to the prophet who was among you. So Jesus was a, is a king. Jesus is a priest. Jesus is a prophet. All of them he was. Now, this is unprecedented in human history. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be a perpetual king and a true prophet and a priest forever. And in fact, the Messianic prophecies given hundreds and thousands of years before his time, were fulfilled in Jesus. What will the Messiah be? He will be a king. He will be a priest. He will be a prophet. He will be a leader without parallel. He will be a priest, one who will connect us to God. And he will be the prophet, the one who will speak the ultimate truth, the way, the truth, and the life. But... He, the Messiah, will not only be a prophet and a priest and a king, but the question needs to be asked, as Kipling asked, the second question is, why? Why will the Messiah come? Now, if you ask anyone, what is the deepest need of humanity? I think most of us, if we think about it for a while, would say the deepest need of humanity is peace, because that's what we don't have. We don't have peace among nations. We don't have peace within a country. We don't have peace within our families. We certainly don't have peace in our own hearts. Why will the Messiah come? Well, we're going to see the Old Testament prophets said that the primary reason why the Messiah will come 
will be to bring peace. This is the text of scripture that comes from Isaiah. Isaiah wrote around 700 BC. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. As you know, I've told you before, I've, I've made many, many trips to the Middle East. And on most of the trips to the Middle East, I've been, we've had a guide that's taken care of us. His name was Yuval. Yuval is, is Jewish. He was born in Israel. But he, uh, he's, he's not a religious Jew at all. He's irreligious, I guess I would say, very secular. And uh, I remember talking with Yuval about Jesus. And here's what he said to me. He said, Tom, he calls me Rabbi. <laughs> he goes, hey, Rabbi. He said, Rabbi, Jesus can't be the Messiah. And I said, why, Yuval? He said, well, because <laughs> you call this peace. It's clear in the Bible that this Messiah will bring peace, and this is governmental peace. This is peace among nations. This is political peace. He said, there's no political peace in our world. You tell me where it is. Jesus can't be the Messiah. This prophecy, which is clear in the Bible, is certainly not fulfilled in Jesus. And I said, you're absolutely right. This prophecy has not been fulfilled. But remember, Advent is the celebration of Jesus' two comings, plural. The first time he came not to bring political peace, but another kind of peace. The second time he will bring political peace. This is still future. But speaking about internal peace, this is the most important prophecy, I would say, from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 700 B.C. Surely he, the Messiah, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we, esteemed, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the ultimate peace. One day he will bring peace to this political world of ours. Not yet, obviously. But his first coming, he brought peace to the human heart. How? By dealing with the greatest ill of the human heart, namely sin. And the, the, the separation from God that that sin brings. It is that sin that he dealt with decisively. As the prophet Isaiah promises, he will deal with it. He will take our sin on himself and give us, in, 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 in turn, his righteousness, his goodness, and our salvation. When the angels first saw, first heard the message of the birth of the Christ child, they said, glory to God on the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And Simeon, who saw this little baby with this peasant couple bringing a little pigeon for their offering, because they were poor, 
he somehow was, I was told by God that he would be able to see the Lord's Messiah with his own eyes. And he sees this little baby coming with this peasant couple. And he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He was the peacemaker. One day he will make peace of all the nations of the world. But right now, he offers peace to the human heart. But there's one of the Kipling questions that prophets don't touch with a 10-foot pole. Why? Because <laughs> if you give dates and you're wrong, you're dead. <laughs> And there have been many quote-unquote prophets through the ages that have given dates. And they're wrong. And guess what they do? They give more dates. And people are dumb enough to believe them. People are incredibly stupid. I mean, incredibly. I'm talking about groups that have millions and tens and scores of millions of people whose quote-unquote prophets have given certifiably false prophecies. Certifiably. And people go, okay. Duh. <laughs> Prophets don't usually give dates because if they do, they're done. <sighs> Except with dumb people. Because we believe even false prophets all the time. Well, you know what the prophet Daniel does? And I'm going to go through this one quickly because we're going to come to it, Lord willing, in January. God gives a date. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, Daniel's writing, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We know the exact date of that decree. It's both in the Bible and in Persian records. That's March the 4th, 444 BC. We know the exact date. We know when Cyrus issued the decree that, the, that, that Nehemiah could go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We know the date. Until the anointed one, that's, duh, that's the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's where you have to do some math. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. When we come to this time, I'm going to hopefully ask people to bring calculators to this service. <laughs> and I will give you some of the background, and you will have fun trying to determine the date. But I can tell you already what it's going to be. It's going to come around Passover time, around the year 30 AD. And it just so happens that the Messiah was cut off around 30 A.D. at Passover time. Paul wrote this. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God knew the exact time when the Messiah would come. And in a, a cryptic but mathematically possible prediction from Daniel, writing in the 500s BC, the time of the Messiah's crucifixion was predicted 
Also, God had to work behind the scenes to make everything fit together. So he kind of pulled the strings of this most august man in Rome called Caesar. He said, hey, Caesar, it's about time for a census. Why don't you pull one? Hey, why don't you demand that everyone has to go back to their ancestral homeland to be counted? That's a good idea. I like that. Little did he know that by doing that, he was setting in motion the, the predictions of God's word that would bring this peasant couple from the backwater of Galilee in this little town of Nazareth down to Bethlehem, the city of the birth of the Messiah, so he could be born. He didn't know the timing. God did. And it was at the perfect time that Jesus was born. But if prophets stay away from dates, they certainly are smart to stay away from absurdities. Well, now in the predictions of Isaiah, the prophet, he's going to predict an absurdity. And we already heard it read this morning by the Shriners. You know this one well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. Birds and bees? <laughs> That's an oxymoron. Virgins don't have children. Sorry. It can't happen. Never happened before. Virgin, by definition, means you can't have a child. And if that's not weird enough, if that's not absurd enough, a virgin's going to have a child, and here's the child's name. God is with us. Oh, can you imagine? You want to name your child? Why don't you name your child God? How many people say, oh, this child, I'm going to call my child God. Well, that's what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, a virgin is going to have a child, and that child's going to be called God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Oh, come, oh, come, God with us. That's what we sang. And that was the longing of the Jewish people. And so what happened? Now, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they had sex. It's just a nice way of saying that. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now this is Matthew's account. This account is also given to us in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, I think God did this on purpose. Luke's a doctor. Luke's a doctor. He's probably delivered babies. He knows about the birds and the bees. God, I'm sure God did that. Because I know he's God. Or I know what those people in the future are going to say. Eh, Matthew, the guy's a tax collector. After all, tax collectors aren't real smart. They just like money. But they're not smart. But what about a doctor? A medical doctor? We're going to have the medical doctor be the main one to tell us about the virgin birth of Jesus. Wow. Well, what, what's the guy's name? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory as the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only is this one born of a virgin, but he's God with us. Stunning. Well, this one's the easy one. 
You ask any Jew in the history of the world, where will the Messiah be born? And everyone knew. That, of course, is clear. Micah the prophet had told us. Here's what he said. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Well, that they knew, that the Messiah would have to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But cryptically in the Old Testament, it also spoke about the fact that the Messiah would live for a time in Egypt. Hosea 11.1, 1. when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In the New Testament, we're going to see this Old Testament statement about the nation of Israel was applied to Jesus, God's son. So now the child would, when you answer the question where, he will be born in Bethlehem, he will live in Egypt, and he will be called a Galilean. This is the prophet. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. So now this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, will live in Egypt, but for a time, but he will mainly be a Galilean. Well, what does the Bible say? You know the Bible story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to his own town to wear register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. We know that one. But then this is the Matthew, the, the Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. By the way, if you are in the Middle East right now, do you know what? We were not called Christians. We're called Nazarene. And as ISIS over the last few years has killed our brothers and sisters in Christ, on the doors of their homes they have written the letter N because Christians are called the followers of the Nazarene, Nazarene, because of Jesus. Now, I, I thought to myself, what would, what would this be like? Uh, what would be the equivalent today of this? And um, this is what I came up with, um, if I can find it. Here's, here's what it was. Um, this would be like predicting 700 years in advance, 700 years, go back 700 years, that a president of the United States of America, a country that didn't exist at the time, will be born in Story, Wyoming. Population 828, that's about the same population as Nazareth. 
and will live for a time in Mexico and claim Mississippi as his home state. That's the equivalent. That's absurd. Absolutely absurd. To claim that there would be a president of a country that doesn't even exist. Who's from story? But lived in Mexico, but his birthplace is Mississippi. <laughs> Mississippi doesn't exist. Story doesn't exist. United States of America doesn't exist. None of this exists. And yet this is what the prophecy was. And guess what? Every one of them came true perfectly in Jesus. Well, last but not least, who will this Messiah be? And this one's clear. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. One day, God will raise up a Messiah who will save his people and his name will be the Lord is our righteousness, which is the greatest gift of all. Who will he be? Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Here's what Paul wrote. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why? What was his coming about? to bring salvation to human beings. How? By this one being the righteousness of God and who on the cross now procured through his righteousness, righteousness for everyone who by faith would receive it so that we could then become clothed in the righteousness of God. And the one who had no sin takes our sin, we clothe him in our sin, and he clothes us and calls us the righteousness of God. That's a good deal. And so, who is he? If we answer all our questions, he's a king, he's a priest, he's a prophet. What did he come for? He came to bring peace on earth and peace with God. When did he come? He came in the fullness of time. How was he born? He was born from a virgin. And he's God with us. Where? Bethlehem, Egypt, Galilee. Why? To be a savior, to be our righteousness. Who is he? Ah, we know. The Lord Jesus Christ. So what? First of all, go figure. Go figure. The odds of so many Old Testament prophecies coalescing in the person and work of Jesus are astronomically impossible, apart from an act of God. So what does a rational person do with the stunning math of the prophecies of Christmas? Wow. One thing it ought to do is to bolster our confidence. 
the antiquity, the specificity, the accuracy of God's prophecies about the birth of Jesus should bolster one's confidence in the word of God. As I've said many, many times, Christianity is primarily history. It's not primarily moralism or ritualism or therapy or mysticism or even wisdom. It is an account of what God has done in space and in time. This Christmas season now has officially commenced. It will be full of heartwarming stories. You know, the gift of the Magi and a Christmas Carol by Dickens. It will be full of fictional characters, Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeers, Talking Snowman, Ebenezer Scrooge. It will be full of cute music. I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. It will be full of dazzling dancing like the Nutcracker Suite and tons of movies. But let us not forget or let us not let the magic of the season and the commercialism of the season cause us to lose sight of the prophecy and the history of Christmas. You see, Christmas is all about the historical coming of someone whose birth was prophesied hundreds and thousands of years perfect before and all perfectly centered on one person, a peasant born in Bethlehem from poor parents, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. What a gift to think that we're the visited planet, that you love this planet in rebellion and we people so in rebellion against you so much that you would have put all these, this puzzle together so beautifully, it's perfect. We, can't, we, we could never come up with anything like it. It's stunning. And you did it because you loved us. And we're rebels. We're not, we don't naturally want to go your way. We very much want to go our own. And yet you go to any lengths, even sending your son to this earth to be born as a baby with diapers and all that stuff. You do that, as it's amazing because you love us and you want us to be with you forever and ever. That's stunning, stunning, stunning. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And I pray that that stunning message would so invigorate us this Christmas season that we go tell it from the mountains. So in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Please stand, you wonderful people. Now, as the season of Advent has begun, I beg you to leave this place with the words ringing in your mind. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God bless you. <laughs>